Hello, Swannies. Welcome back to Keep Honking, the Vietnam Swans podcast. Today's guest is massive. In fact, I believe it's our first ever AFL Premiership player. Before we get to him, welcome to my co-host, Rod Rocket White. How are you, Rocket? Yeah, going well, Billy. Going very well. And when you say massive, it's one particular body part that's massive, but we'll wait to get that at a later stage. Okay. Now... So as you probably can see from the, uh, from the podcast title, today's guest is Ricky Laurentiaux, a star, of the, a star AFL premiership player in the 1993 Baby Bombers. He also went on to play with Collingwood and North Melbourne before really hitting his straps as one of the kingpins of the Bali geckos and the Indonesian volcanoes. Rick, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Well, I probably should thank you for that huge intro. It's just got massive. I don't think I've ever been described as massive before. I should have had you guys um, in the yes and cheers squad because I know when I played my 50th game, I had the, I was that excited. I thought, what are they going to put on the banner? And they put 50 solid games. <laughs> I thought of all the they could have used, they could have used massive or whatever, but they used solid. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a letdown as I ran yeah. through the banner. <laughs> See, solid, we could go anywhere. We could go anywhere with that, I reckon. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe. Maybe we'll wait. I think there's another. There's a, there's a question coming out later on in the in the uh, in the flow here, mate, where we talk about something in particular. So, but we'll get on to that now, mate. First, as I say, thanks for thanks for joining us all the way from Bali, where, as um, I don't know who said it, but I'm going to probably embarrass myself here. But surf's up, pal. <laughs> yeah, he did say that. Was that at a point break or something like that? It was does, it? Um, does sound like that. So. Yeah. I guess the one positive we've got with, with COVID hitting Bali is the all un, the uncrowded waves we're getting at the moment. With no tourists in in town, you don't have to hassle for wave every day like we've had to the last few years. And so that's one thing I'm trying to make the most of is no traffic and, and plenty of uncrowded waves and cheap accommodation deals when I get kicked out by the missus. So um, there are some advantages um, right now, but without you know tourism in sight, um, it's pretty hard to make a buck. So we just got to be patient. Yeah, and I think, as I said, we were discussing earlier, you know, I think when it comes back, it should come back pretty quick because there'll be a thousand Aussies wanting to get out of Australia for a holiday. So oh, they'll be coming their droves. Now, mate, just to, just to kick things off, so as I said uh, to you on a call yesterday, that we do a bit of homework, do a bit of research on our guests, a little bit on you, spoke to a couple of people who might know a little bit about you. Um but you started off, obviously, Bali's a long way from Keelor where you started off, and uh, you didn't break for Essendon, I believe, at that stage. No, I grew up a mad bulldog. I, I lived in Keelor, which was part of it was zoned to Essendon, part was zoned to the Bulldogs, and I grew up in a really mad bulldog household. Um, and I actually moved houses at 12. I, I used to live next door to Scotty West. So when I moved, he stayed in the, in the bulldog zone, and I moved into the Essendon zone. So that's how I... I finished up at Essendon because I was zoned. I missed. I didn't have to go through the draft. Um, you know, and and I was. Yeah. My dog was called Dougie Hawkins at the time, and you know, all my idols were Bulldog <laughs> supporters. So I was. And to be honest, you know, when you grow up, you hate. Especially hated Essendon because all my mates were <laughs> Essendon supporters growing up in Keilor. So I, I used to, you know, give Paul Salmon a spray and all these sort of blokes. And the, and the first night at training at Essendon, the first 
lap I got to do was with Paul Salmon. <laughs> and I've been giving him a spray for the last few years and calling him every name under the sun. But he was the first guy I did a warm-up lap with. And I just was so in awe. I was so, you know, he's six foot ten. I was, at the time, I was 62 kilo when I got to Essendon. 62 oh, kilo. Um, yeah, and I remember yeah. I was too scared. Going to, I was too scared to go in the gym when the other players were in, were in there. I used to wait till they all left, and I'd go in. I'd take all the weights off the off the barbell because I couldn't do the big plates on the bench press, and I'd just do the little small weights on the bench press. But I was so embarrassed. I'd wait till everyone left. Um, Surely something I, had your broomstick. So here, lift this, mate. Lift the broomstick. Surely something about that gag. Yeah, well, I just I thought if she sees me lifting those weights, you'll never pick me. Um, I think yeah. I ended up playing in the premiership at something like 72 kilo um, and then end up sort of playing most of my career about 80, which I, which I try to keep at eight. It's because I'm still playing footy now. I'm trying to stay, stick to my playing weight of about 80 kilo. That's good going. I tell you, mate, you're saying 63 kilos. Billy, on a Friday night, would try and drink that much, I tell you. So that <laughs> is like Billy is asleep after about 40 kilos and then the next 23... Yeah, we, we try and get it through. Now, you got a couple of brothers as well. you got two two brothers as well. They play a bit of footy. Uh, I've got, yeah, my brother's a fair bit older, about 10 years older, and they played a bit of footy with yeah, Keelor. Yeah. And um, my brother oh, Dean's okay. had a pretty successful coaching record, um, you know, especially up on the Gold Coast. He's, he's still involved with Bond University now with the men's and women's program. So he's he was yeah. a big influence on my career. Um yeah. because he loved his footy and, and used to go to all my games. He was, he was my first runner. Um, where my uncle was my first coach. Um, yeah. So, yeah, my brother Dean's always been a pretty big influence on, on my career. And he actually, um, he went on Keel's football trip um, the same weekend as the Essendon grand final in 93. So, he's, he's flown out to Hobart on the, on the Thursday and got there on the Friday. Um, and I was like, mate, what are you doing? I'm in the AFL grand final tomorrow, you know. What are you doing in Hobart? And he got total FOMO. He, goes, he said to the Keel boys, listen, I, I can't be in Hobart when my little brother's playing at AFL Grand Final. I've got to get back. Um, and the other thing Keeler did too, they had a bit of money, spare money left over. And I was playing, paying like 100 bucks, 100 to 1 to win the Norm Smith. So the boys and Keel loaded up on that as well. <laughs> um, my brother flew back that night, got in, got into for the game on the Saturday. And I think at quarter time, I had something like 12 possessions. So all the killer boys in Hobart were already starting to spend their money. I thought I was home and hose, but my second half was a bit quieter, so they didn't, they didn't bring home any, any money on the betting. But my brother finally got to that game, and, um, and then he got to the room, went to go in the rooms after the game and um, said to the doorman, hey, I'm, I want to go in the room but see my brother. My brother's Rick Olorenshaw. And he just said, mate, everyone's his brother today. You can't come in. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so he missed out on that moment. But, um, yeah, no, my brother Dean's still involved with um, footy up in the Gold Coast. He's also involved with the Bali Geckos as well. He gets he gets involved with um, with footy in Bali as well. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Similar story, you know, talking about that, because in 1991, when Paul Deere from Churchill won the Norman Smith medal, right? So two of the brothers are at the club, you know, and weren't at the ground. I don't know why they were at VFL Park that day. But they had a bit of money on a poor winner that win a North Smith medal that day. So yeah, it's it's incredible stories, incredible. Now playing under Kevin Sheedy for for a solid chunk of your uh, career, have you got any um any any best stories that stand out from the great man? Sheedyism. Oh yeah, very unique guy. Sheeds. Um, yeah, obviously I had him my whole time, whole career at Essendon, and the one thing he used to make me laugh. I did it silently though. Was um. 
he used to get plays mixed up in previous eras. <laughs> so he'd be talking about, let's say, the Bulldogs, and he, and he would be previewing the game coming up. And he, he'd see, like Scott West, for example, who wears number seven, but he would call him Doug Hawkins. And he used to do that all the time. He'd always be referring to players in the previous era, which used to confuse the shit out of us. Um, I, and I remember um, we, were, we were looking back at the game against Carl. We lost under lights in 93. In the, I think it was the first ever uh, final under lights. We lost by a couple of points. And um, I remember Ange Christie was dominating across half back. And she's was like, boys, who's playing on Marku? Who's playing on Alex Marku? And we're all confused thinking, Alex Marku, didn't he play in the 80s? Like, and um, so then he's accused Tim Watson. He said, Timmy, I reckon you're on uh, Alex Marku. And quickly, Timmy said, no, nah, I was on Katogio. And the boys, the boys just erupted. And, and the look on Sheeta's face, like, come on, Timmy, Katogio played in the 80s, mate. What are you talking about? You know, it was just this game Timmy played with him. Um, but he used to do that all the time. He'd always talk about players in previous eras that we had no idea who he was referring to. So that made yeah. team meetings quite interesting. Um, so how were, how were his training sessions? Um, they weren't always that well planned, to be honest. Sometimes we get the training and she wasn't even there. And we were on the phone trying to find him. Um, and sometimes he just got carried away, when, especially when there was a crowd. When there was a, you know, a big final or a big game, he'd often get, a, you know, a couple of thousand people down at Windy Hill and he just loved the crowd at training. So he'd always try to get trained by an extra hour and a half um, just to impress the crowd and he'd get us off the fence and he'd be doing all these different drills in front of the crowd to show off his own skills. Um, and eventually one of the <laughs> assistant coaches would have to step in and go, come on, Sheed, we've got to get these boys off the track. But um, yeah, his training sessions got pretty interesting sometimes. He was very good on game day, Sheed. He was always really good at finding... Um, you know, theme. I think Luke Beveridge does it now. She's yeah. very good at finding themes that suited what, what where we're at with our footy um, or what game we'll, we'll presented with. So, you know, I remember when we used to play West Coast when they were really big and strong. Um, they'd just come off the 92 flag and he used that yeah. Tiananmen Square picture where the big tank in front of the, you know, the small Chinese guy saying that's sort of us against them. He used to use that quite a lot. Um, he used Duncan Armstrong, the swimmer, um, because Duncan Armstrong sort of won that race coming from behind. He was ranked, you know, 40th in the world coming into the Olympics. So he often used, um, you know, things from other things from other sports or from history, um, and it always made, you know, pre-game always pretty interesting. He didn't hear the same message all the time. So, so the 90, 93 baby bombers. Um, Tell us about that actual day, given that we're, you know, almost grand final time again, again this year. Um, how were you feeling pre-game? How did you feel kind of during the game? And uh, how were the celebrations? Uh, look, it's a pretty long question. <laughs> yeah, try, try and stay in order. Um, to be honest, I feel for the players at the moment, that's a, to have the bye before the grand final, it's a really long wait. Um, I'm sort of glad that, preliminary final was so close to the grand final um the week does go quickly but there is a lot of nerves associated with it and a lot more goes on with the week but you stretch that out over two weeks um you know you, you can get overawed as a player and and, and play it in your mind too much so i'd rather just be rolling from one week to the next rather than having a buy like they're, they're currently doing um but it's a really exciting week because we had something like ten thousand people at training um down at windy hill so i made training 
um, you know, a, a great vibe. And then it's funny, going into the game, I, it felt normal for us. Um, we tried to keep everything the same. So when you go in the club rooms, there was no streamers. There was no balloons. There was no Rocky music blaring, which you see often at, at grassroots footy. So we felt like it was just a normal game. I think my, my family were probably more nervous because they, they were out in the crowd and you got the aeroplane flying above and the, you know, the, all the singing and whatever going on. So I think as a player, you just go through your normal routine. And, um, and because we played in front of big crowds before and we had a lot of belief in our own team and we, we felt like we could, you know, we're really confident we could win. So I actually felt really good before the game. I felt really confident. And I think that's, I'm sure both teams, Melbourne and Bulldogs will probably feel the same way about themselves. They've, they've got a lot of belief. They feel like they can win. Um, so, you know, the lead up, I guess you should, as a player, enjoy as much of it as you can. Um, and then it's really important to get a kick early. I, I was lucky. I got my hands on the ball early. And it's amazing. I guess you guys have played footy. When you get a couple of touches early, it settles the nerves. But if you don't get hands on the footy, um, you can start looking at the time clock going, shit, I'm 15 minutes in, I haven't got yeah. near it. Um, so again, it, it's really important as a player to be aware of players around you. It might be just a little handball around the back or a little chip kick just to bring someone into the game. Um, and I'm sure even the Bulldogs on the weekend probably thought Chalor's probably one they need to bring into the game early because he had a poor game the week before. So it, you've got to be aware of the players around you and who might be struggling or who needs to get their hands on the ball early. Um, and then once you, once you settle into the game, it just feels like any other game you've grown up playing. They don't move the goalposts. They don't change the size of the ground or the size of the ball. Once you're in that zone, you forget about everything else that goes on. You know, you forget about the crowd. Um, and obviously when – it probably wasn't until about five minutes to go that I felt like we won the game, even though we were six or seven goals up. You never feel quite like you're there. But the, probably the last yeah. couple of minutes, you've got that feeling more of relief rather than – jubilation you're just like well, okay we're, we're here now we've we can't lose it and then once the final siren goes obviously when that's when the jubilation comes in um and then yeah that that week's just an awesome week obviously walking around town with the premiership medal i even what well, i actually on the monday night got picked up by a divvy van and i actually thought they got the police got to arrest me but they just took me to another bar <laughs> um, and dropped me off. Um, so when you got a premiership medal on, in, in grand final week in Melbourne, it, it is like a key to the city. It definitely helps get from A to B. Hey, uh, you I said, hope answer, anyway, Bill, I hope that answers your question. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. You did mention then, mate, which I'm really curious, is like, which is very different to, say, grassroots footy to the biggest AFL, you know, game that we have and being the grand final where you said that the, the crowd doesn't play a role. And as a spectator watching the game, like let's say, for example, let's say, let's say a, a home game for West Coast or Port Adelaide, right, where the crowd get involved, right, and actually start, they feel like they're actually energising the playing group, right? Is that something that you feel? Because obviously you've played in front of a pretty big crowd. So is it, can, you, can you feed off that? Oh, Definitely feed off it. You think about it. Um, like when we played you guys in Vietnam, all the yeah. crowd were on one side of the ground. So the thousand people that were there, they're all they're all on one side of the ground. Everyone goes a bit harder, don't they? They always go a bit harder on yeah. that on that wing where everyone is. On the outer wing, you tend to cheat a bit more and you know maybe not chase as hard or go at the ball as hard. So when you're playing AFL, you've got nowhere to hide. Everywhere you go, you've got that crowd yeah. roaring and and um, and spurring you on. It's just like when you play. You know, grassroots footy, 
there's only small pockets yeah. of crowds, so you, you go a bit harder there. If you think about a whole stadium of people, that's why the pressure at AFL level is so high, the intensity is so high, because you've got that 360-degree mm. crowd and noise and inspiration fueling the game from start to finish. And I think that's why there's so much extra pressure intensity at that level. And I guess if everyone's got that same mindset, right, that you've just talked about then, right, in terms of I've got all eyes on me, 360, there's nowhere to hide. They're all at that highest potential or highest possible level to, 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 to as I say, whether that be energy or, or courage or whatever it might be, then to not take that, whether it's short step or whatever it might be. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned uh, the Premiership medal and you said sort of it's like a key to the city. Where is your premiership medal today? What are you, what have you done with it? In, in the sock drawer? Uh, to be honest, it wasn't a sock drawer, and I probably would have lost it if my parents <laughs> didn't didn't take control of it. They they took it out of my sock drawer and, and got my the Guernsey I wore in the game. And there was also a picture of me holding the cup on the front cover of Inside Football, I think it was the magazine back then. Um, and yeah. it just put all three together into a nice frame and with the medal and the picture and the jumper, which is now with my brother back in Melbourne. Um, but if I didn't do that, I would have no idea where it would have gone by now. Um, <laughs> it did cover a lot of territory after the grand final. As, uh, that medal did, did go through some bars and, and get, get up to its own mischief at times. But um, it's now safe and sound back in Melbourne on my brother's wall. What do I feel? That could be a whole other podcast, Bill. We just do Rick Ellerinshaw's Premiership Medallion pod next time. And we'll get that, that later on. Could be an OnlyFans podcast, that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now, last one, just on because we'll, we'll touch on we'll touch on Anzac Day a bit later as well. But you played in a few of these Anzac Day clashes, right? So, how many did you play in total? Do you remember? Oh, well, the most memorable one was in was in Vietnam at Bung Tao, but um, no, I played in that original one in '95 um, yeah. when we had that drawn game. That was the first Anzac Day game. Uh, and then I don't know I played. I think I played Collingwood more times than any other club. So I don't know how many it adds up to be, but it yeah. seemed like Collingwood was the, the team I played played against the most. Yeah, and and I guess it'd be just to say an insight for people who you know it's quite a unique. You know, you, you you hold quite a unique place, right, as a player to be able to play in those games and as many as as you did. Um, could you? Is there anything like? I don't know, could you share any insights, you know, in terms of the build-up to those games and, I don't know, what you were taught or, or anything that Kevin Sheedy did about sort of, I guess, educating you about that day or the importance of it or, you know, anything like that? Well, I think the first one came as a bit of a surprise. It was the first game played on Anzac Day. So we just didn't expect yeah. such a massive crowd. I guess as a player, we just went in as like a normal home and away game. Um, and then I guess it became a institution from that moment on. Um, so I guess as a player, when you play on Anzac Day, you do learn a bit more about history of um, of our country and what, what we fought for. And I guess you have, even in retirement, you have a bit more respect for Anzac Day. You always like to make a day of it. And even now I live in Bali and have so, done for a long time. You always want to do something that's you know Anzac Day related. And even going to Vietnam to play um, our Anzac Day game up there, uh, was that three or four years ago, was an awesome experience for a lot of our players and some of our players aren't even Australian so they appreciate it you know even more so um and to learn about the history of of what what the Australian boys went through in Vietnam that was a really awesome experience and again that was a draw um my first Anzac Day game at (laughs) AFL level was a draw my first 
um, Anzac Day game up in Vietnam was a draw as well, even though we celebrated because we thought we'd won. And then the umpires yeah. realised they made a mistake <laughs> with the scoreboard. Um, and our boys already taken off their, their boots, whatever, so we couldn't go into extra time. But I think it was a really um, good result in the end. Definitely. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think we could have gone extra time. I think we'd... I we'd just think we're, we're, we're a bit busted. The most memorable moment in that game is when one of your players went down with a sort of head and neck injury and we had no stretches. Yeah. So we had to get mm. take the hot dog off the trestle table out <laughs> and, and bring the trestle table out into the ground and roll the bloke onto that and had six players carry him off. Then we couldn't carry restart off. the game. Yeah. Six players were still missing. Yeah. That was one, like, of, yeah. one of the most I remember about that game. <laughs> yeah. Now, I hope my research... Um, stands up here it occasionally doesn't stand up in in these podcasts but um through that <laughs> you were traded to collingwood in 98 but you actually wanted to get to to north melbourne where you you did get to eventually but uh why couldn't you get to to north in the first place and what did that do for your motivation yeah i come out of contract end of 98 and i was sort of wasn't enjoying my football i'd had a few injuries um as well and i felt like i she was sort of playing me all over the place i i, I was playing you know, half back i was playing tagging i was on ball playing half forward i just couldn't get settled so an essence salary cap was pretty tight as well and and i decided to to make the move and i wanted to play on the dennis pagan who was who who coached me in the reserves at Essendon. I, I wanted to go and play on the north and and i knew a few of the north players as well because we sort of live in the same area and it just gets hard. during trade time. It's it's easy to say you want to go to a certain club, but they've also got to agree on a trade. And at that mm. point, Sheeds and Pagan didn't have a great relationship, and they couldn't agree on what was a fair trade. And then it got to the deadline um, where you know if I didn't, I could have gone to Brisbane, um, who had the first pick in the preseason draft, and I think Lee Matthews had just taken over at that point. Um, and then they redrew their contract as well because I wouldn't commit to them. And then I looked up going into Fremantle, I think it was, who had like second pick in the draft. So when it came to the crunch, I didn't want to go to Fremantle. So I took, there was a deal on the table for, to Collingwood, which wasn't my first choice, but I thought it was, you know, not a bad second choice. Um, and then that's why I decided to go to Collingwood because I just didn't want to go past the deadline and, and end up going over to Perth. Um, and then I got to Collingwood and it's funny, as soon as I walked in the place, I, I just felt like I'd make the wrong decision. Because Collingwood back then were struggling financially. The rooms were run down. They had a pretty poor list. And I, as soon as I walked in, I felt like I'd made a mistake. I wanted to go back to Essendon. I had a few players try to talk me out of leaving Essendon. Uh, I remember James Herb was pleading with me to, to stay and, and stick it out. Um, so I got to Collingwood and I got injured. I missed two years with injury. And then um, it wasn't until... No, I retired at the end of those two years because my body was shot. And then that's when Dennis Pagan came along and taught me out of retirement because at that stage I was only about 27. And that's how I finished up at North. Um, but again, yeah. first game back, I, I tore off my hamstring again. And that was it. So I ended up retiring pretty young. But, yeah, I eventually got to North, but I got to North when I was pretty much a cripple um, and couldn't really contribute yeah. a lot. I didn't play much AFL really after I turned 24. Who was, um, who was coaching Collingwood at the time, mate? Huh? I had um, a year under Tony Shaw and, and Danny Frawley was his, his assistant. And then yes. he got sacked at, during that year and then uh, Moldhouse was appointed. Um, and I didn't get oh. to – one of my biggest regrets was not to get 
I felt like the whole place changed once Eddie McGuire came in and, and Mick Moldhouse got the job. Even though I liked yeah. Tony Shaw, Tony Shaw had some great attributes. But I, my biggest regret was not to get to play under Mick because I got injured in the preseason, didn't play again. I yeah. never actually got to play a game under Mick. And I, that's probably one thing I, you know, I look back at my career and I do regret because I think it would have been a great coach to play under. Yeah, and and as I say, you, you retired early. Like I said, you played a lot of, well, most of your footy between, what, 18, 19? Yeah, 18 to 24. Yeah, I, did, I only played five games after 98. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't play a lot of footy after 24. And then I gave the game up at, what, 28? Then I got approached by the umpiring department to join the umpiring ranks. Uh, but then I took a, a contract to go to London to work in sports marketing and, and in cricket. So yeah. I, I ended up in London doing that and got heavily involved in cricket. Uh, and then I worked in, in that industry then for about 12 or so years. And then I before we get to that, mate, before we get to that, there's, there's one thing I just need to check before we move off talking about yeah. your injuries. Okay. Now, I, I, this, this will be a, a true or false question and then we'll feel free to elaborate, right, once I've asked okay. the question. Sure, mate, sure. Is it true... Now, well, we know it's true you've had a lot of soft tissue injuries. We, we're, we're clear on that. But is it true? Did you do your hammy playing pool in a, in a bar? True or false? Yeah, true. Yeah. True. You've just done your homework. <laughs> Where did you get that? That's going, I think that's going back to the – might have been at the Cadillac Bar in Swanson Street in about, <laughs> shit, 19, early 90s. I was I was breaking. I was like, I think it was the postseason. Now I think I'd, I'd had a few day, a bit of a day bent, a few days on the piss after the season, and I just yeah. went bang, trying to really break those balls over and <laughs> tore the hamstring. Jeez, wow! Oh, well, lucky the end of season, mate. Look at the upside. Lucky the end of season. Yeah. Didn't have too much to do. Don't no, explain yourself, which was lucky. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so the so the London London. How did that? So to, to, to get to go out to London, obviously that's a big move in itself, right? Where you sort of twenty nine or whatever. Actually, before yeah. we jump on that, the umpires. What did the umpires want you to come and do for them? Well, actually, umpire. Not teach about umpire. Actually, umpire. They were looking for a, a fresh face out of the game to come into the umpiring ranks, and um, they actually made a really good offer. Boy, here he is. What's that? The pin-up boy, here he is, the, the, the big well, teeth. Yeah. And I... I think they ended up going with, I think Mark Fraser might have ended up taking that contract. I reckon he was the one, yeah. the first one to step in. Yeah. And I think Jordan, maybe Jordan Bannister just after that. So, yeah, it was something that got put on my plate and I, I, I generally considered doing it. Because, uh, again, I, my body was shot, but I still wanted to be involved with footy. Um, yeah. And then I got a really good offer to go to London and work in um, in cricket, which was my was my other passion growing up. And uh, I never really, never got a chance to play high level cricket because I had to give it away as a teenager. And I thought here's a chance to actually work in cricket. That's why I moved to London. So five years in London, you see, mate. I lasted. You'll laugh at this. I got there and I was so cold. Right, because it was Christmas <laughs> time. I said to my boss, who was another Australian guy, mate. I can't, I can't stay this place any longer. I'm going home. So he, he said, all right, let's set up an Australian office of this company. And that's what I did. I moved back to Melbourne and started the Australian arm of the company. And then we got heavily involved with cricket in India and the IPL. And, and that's what I did for 10 years, pretty much. 
Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a great, great story. Yeah, I think I'd say two or three months I lasted in London and I, I was done. I was cooked. So got back to Australia. Oh, yeah. That's all I've lasted, mate. I said to my boss, mate, this is too cold. I cannot deal with this place. I'm going home. So I stayed with the company, but I, I, I started the Australian office and that's where I remained for 10 years after that. And then um, and then just then I decided to pack up and retire and move to Bali with, with no with no ambitions to play football. Like I came mm. to Bali thinking my football days are over. I hadn't played any yeah. football after I left North Melbourne. And um, and then the president of the get-go's heard I'd I'd come to Bali and sent me a message on Facebook wanting to catch up and and I reluctantly went down and had a bit of a kick and wasn't real did heart wasn't in it, my body wasn't in it. And, um, and there wasn't many players. And we, the Geckos were struggling. We only had a handful of players. So we just played a bit of kick-to-kick and you know, a few snaps at goal. And that's all it was when I first arrived. That was about 2013, I'm guessing. Um, and then, I don't know, I just got the bug. We had a fair few guys move to Bali at a similar time who loved their football. And it's amazing when you get, you know, when you've got six blokes to train, there's not much you can do. But when you get 12 or 13 and you have a handball match, then the following you got yeah. 15 or 16 players. And it's just... Once you can have a bit of a match, that's when we gathered some momentum. Um, and yeah, mate. and I got my body going again and, and just fell in love with the game again. So true. So true. Vietnam, same thing when I was, you know, when I was over there when I first lobbed in. But uh, just as you say, it makes a huge difference and you get some momentum and then get a couple of locals involved and all of a sudden they bring a few along and then it just starts to snowball. So very true. It's amazing how many expats come down for their first session and do a hamstring or a quad. Yeah. <laughs> but then what happens? They come down once, you lose them for about three weeks. You bump into them at a bar or a nightclub and go, mate, where have you been? Oh, mate, have you still sore? Get back down there, mate. Well, we'll sort you out. We'll fix you. Happened to me. Same thing happened to yeah, me. Yeah. You know, every time I, I train, I do a hammy. But yeah, that's how it sort of normally happens. And then they bring a mate down and they go through the same process. That's sure. that's that's footy for you. So so Rick, you are also a uh, a much famed um, one of the greatest ever. Actually, I've I've seen listed several times. Um, boundary riders was that was that at the same time as the sports management stuff, or how did that come about? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. When you say the greatest ever, I think they're just taking the piss. But <laughs> they they do been... they do rankings. Um, yeah, I got. SCN got me as 11th or something something like that. But no, easily top 10. Yeah, they got me as 11th, but I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I just fell into that job. I, when I moved back from London, I was I started managing a whole range of sports people and, and Channel 7 got the rights for the football. And I went in there to meet with the with the bosses there to talk about my talent they had on my books. For example, Jason Ackermanis and Brendan Bavola and these sort of guys. Um, hoping I could get them some work with Channel 7 now that I had the rights. And, and I walked out with a job myself um, <laughs> because they were, looking for someone who had a, they were looking for someone who had a medical background and a football background. Mm. And because I was a physiotherapist by trade, because uh, you know, I worked as a physio while I was playing AFL, uh, the, the boss said, well, wait, you can talk about injuries, you can talk about footy, how about you take the job? And that's how I, that's how I landed at Channel 7. And um, they don't really give you much training when you do TV. Uh, they just throw you in and, and, they, and you hope for the best. Um, and so, yeah, I had some moments where I butcher the English language. And the hard thing with TV, they, they never forget about it. They, I reckon when, 
there's once a year or twice a year where my phone just starts going crazy because I've just been put on the front bar. They, they, <laughs> may as well pull out they always pull out something out of the archives where I've, I've made up some pretty ordinary English words or sentences. And, um, yeah, twice a year my phone goes off. Everyone wants to let me know they've been on the front bar again. So I did that for about five years, which, you know, I, which was a really fun job to have. And, uh, and then I think Richo retired, and so they sacked me, put Richo instead. Um, After you replaced Dipper, mate, did you replace Dipper as a boundary rider? Well, oh, I'm trying to think who I replaced. Uh, well, because Channel 7 was new. So Channel 9, I don't remember who Channel 9 would have had, or was it Channel 10? I don't yeah. know who. But I, uh, I was sort of the first Channel 7 boundary rider they used, and then Richo retired, and, and he's got a much better playing CV than I have, and, and they flicked me. Um, but I was quite happy to move move to Bali. That was a consolation yeah. prize. That was probably yep. the only thing that was stopping me from coming. And so I moved to Bali, and um, I still get reminded about my my boundary riding days. And um, but yeah, it's uh, it was fun times. Fantastic. So why why Bali? I think the answer is going to be pretty obvious, but but humorous. Uh, why Bali? I, well, I discovered Bali. Back in 97, when we, Essendon Footy Club went to South Africa on a football trip. That's when the football trips were you know, still in vogue. And we went there as a team and we came back via Perth. And I thought, hang on, we've still got like a week off before we start training again. And I've heard about this Bali place. So I, I went from Perth to Bali by myself just to check it out. And came back and said to the boys, I just discovered this amazing place called Bali. Um, and I'm going to organise next year's footy trip. It's on me. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm in charge of the footy trip. So we... We came in 98, um, the whole team came and we stayed at the Hard Rock Hotel, which had just been built. And I fell in love with Bali from that very moment. And then uh, I, I started coming three or four times a year. Every time I got a chance to, to get away, I come to Bali. And, and then I just thought, why not try to live here and uh, see how life goes? I love my surfing and I love warm weather. And um, so, yeah, that's, I thought I'd give it a go and I haven't looked back. Um, and mate, certainly haven't looked back because what you've got family, you've well, you've got wife and a little girl there now. Yeah, yeah, I've got a boy and girl actually. I, I um, oh. met a Balinese, yeah, met a Balinese girl uh, when I first moved here, and yeah, we've now I've now got a boy and girl, so they're both involved with our. Well, we don't call it Oz Kick, we call it Indo Kick over here. Um, yeah. So they're involved with the junior program. My wife plays in our women's team. Um, so we're a whole family affair now that they, they, they love their football and, and love getting involved. Oh, yeah. So we're, 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 we're full on footy family. They love the Bulldogs. They like, even my mother-in-law loves watching the Bulldogs play every weekend, comes over and watches <laughs> it on the big screen. Um, so yeah, that's how I've settled in Bali and, um, and, and, and love playing. I still love playing footy for the get-go's. I'm, I'm clinging on my back with my body's just hanging on. I just need COVID to go away so I can yeah. play some more footy. If this COVID cloud yeah. sticks around for a while, I think my body won't be able to play footy again. Yeah. And you are... Uh, some teams to play again. You swept the misses off her feet there. You just sort of, you know, swinging around and, you, you know, your tan, you know, pipes out. She went, oh, who's that? Oh, that's that Rick Hollerenshaw from Australia? Or just, no, none of that shit. Uh, I actually followed her on the bike. She was driving down Main Street of Seminyak and I spotted this pretty yeah. girl riding on the bike so I thought I'd follow her like a creepy old guy would do and she pulled up at the park of the car put up beside her and 
asked her for a drink and she actually said yes, but only one. She said, I'll only do one and I'm going out. I said, okay. And and um, that's uh, how it happened pretty much. Uh, brilliant. Uh, so yeah. Now, I think the massive uh, references that, that Rocket was making at the start of the podcast um, are supposed to be arm-related and, and they connect to obviously your your businesses these days, the F45 gyms in, in Bali. Can you tell us a little bit about um, setting up a business in Bali and, and was that your first idea um, once you arrived? And, and how's the path been in, in – you've got two gyms now, I think. Uh, and, uh, and three, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I came here with a pretty much clean slate. It was the first time in my life I didn't have a plan. You know, I'd come out of school, into uni, into AFL, into, and I just sort of come to Bali. I'd surf and just work out what I want to do in life. And my brother actually opened up an F45 on the Gold Coast. He was one of the mm. first um, F45s to open outside of Sydney. And we'd been talking about doing F45 here in Bali once he's become quite successful on the Gold Coast. And then I met Bryce, who's, who's now my business partner. He moved to Bali as well. Um, and we met at the footy club. Yeah, he's a, he, he's our, he was our captain there for a while. And he was keen to do F45 in Bali. So we teamed up together, um, Bryce, my brother and myself, and we opened up Seminyak. Um, but again, having... Having a Balinese wife did help that process. Opening mm. business in Bali can get quite difficult, but having that Balinese partner helped. So I opened up Seminyak, then we opened up Changu. We also opened Jakarta as well. We opened up a studio over there, which is currently shut because of COVID. Um, and we are going to open up Uluwatu at some point too, once COVID clears. So um, that's sort of what we've done from a from a uh, gym point of view. I also saw a, a niche in the market for a, a spa, um, so we opened up some spas in Bali as well. Um, and we've got a new one opening up next month called Mix in uh, Changu. So, so are you exclusive on, on F45 in the country or, or you've just been pushing ahead while you can? No, I've got the Bali rights. Um, yeah, okay. And then I also have another guy through the Bali Geckos who was keen to open an F45. So I encouraged him to move to Jakarta. Mm. Um, and open F45 there. So Zenon, he opened up a couple in Jakarta. He also opened in Surabaya. Um, So, yeah, I've just got the rights to Bali and just one territory in Jakarta. Um, And then that I'm I'm pretty much happy with that. And then I'm just going to roll out my chain of spas now. I've got got Mm. a spa brand, one called Flame, one called Minx, one called Swell. Um, So I'm going to roll out those um, once COVID lifts and tourists start coming back. Entrepreneur, I, I, I say I wasn't sure. I didn't know we'd be going in the entrepreneur part, but I like it. I like it. It's very good. When you have kids in Asia and you've got to pay for expat private schools, you've got to work, mate. You've got to go back to work, find a way to earn a dollar. They're not cheap. <laughs> yep. That's funny for you, Bill. You need, you need to understand that in Vietnam, right? With yeah. Kids. When you have them stop practicing, get involved. Now, now, one of the topics as well, which is one of the key ones here we got involved was around Asian footy. So you've sort of given us a bit of a, uh, a bit of an insight as to how you got dragged down there. But did you know anything at all about Asian footy before you'd arrived? Because obviously you must have been coming back to and from Bali pre that. Uh, I actually trained with the Bali Geckos in around about 1999. 
Um, I was over in Bali with a yeah, that's right. Collingwood was supposed to come to Bali on their footy trip, and I was at Collingwood at the time. And Nathan yeah. Buckley banned the football trip. So he actually said, we've had a shit season. We're finished bottom. We're not allowed to go on a footy trip. And I said, well, mate, you can't stop me from going to Bali. I'm, I've got some unfinished business over there. So um, I actually dragged across, I dragged across Heath, Scotland, um, who at that point was only 18. He'd never gone further than Yarrawonga on a holiday. And it, he came to Bali with me with another guy called Tyson Lane, if you remember him. And somehow we got dragged down to Bali Gecko's train. They were training in some cow paddock at the back of Cuda. And I was so hungover and I, I seriously, I couldn't even hit a target. Um, that, so that was my ex- first experience with the Bali Geckos. And that's how I first met Hinchy, who is still the president. He's the founding, he was the founding president and still our president um, coming up to 25 years next year. And um, so that was so when I moved back to Bali, I really had no ambitions in playing footy or getting involved in football. It wasn't until Hinchy hunted me down again on Facebook and uh, got me down there. That's that that sparked my interest in getting back involved with, with footy again. And as I said, it was a slow process because I, my heart wasn't in it. My body was pretty average at the time. Um, yeah. We didn't have many players, and then once I sort of got got involved and and my body felt better and. I met a really a good bunch of guys through the footy club, and we started playing more games. And um, I just, I'm still a competitive beast. You probably saw me in Vietnam. I still have a bit of a crack. Um, so I think yeah. for me, I just, I just love being part of the. I probably didn't realize how much I miss being part of a football club. You know, the banter and the camaraderie, uh, and also when you have yeah. when you have a win, you know that jubilation you, you feel when you have a, a good win. I didn't realise how much I'd missed that and it'd been out of my life for something like 15 years. So I'm, I'm really glad I, I've stepped back into, into footy and now it's, it's a big part of my life here in Bali and it's great to see so many people come down to the club and especially not from a, a football background. We've got men and women from all over the world who are now just loving our sport and wanting to learn more about our sport, bring out their friends. Um, and we've had a real revival since COVID's hit. I thought it might have been the end for our footy club. We had a lot of guys have to leave leave Bali and go back to their yeah. home ports, but we've seen a whole range of new faces come down, and um, and particularly with the women, we've just had women from our demographics different. With the men's team, it's mainly Australian expats, and particularly from Melbourne and Perth and, and a few in- Indonesians. But the women have got a lot broader demographic. We've got girls from Ireland and Canada and mm. New Zealand, and they're just such a broader range of, of girls um, and they're really great to coach because they've just got a whole fresh and vibrant look about about playing football that they're actually a really good crew to coach as well and they just want to get better but they're really frustrated that we've got no one to play against they've got no opposition that's really frustrating them at the moment yeah it's interesting look again you're this is the, this next question is a good one to ask you given that you said 1999 I think you said in terms of your first Involvement. So, how how have you seen, or how do you view the development of, of Asian footy? You know, in your in your time there, and not only, I guess because you've travelled a bit now as well through Asia with footy. You know, the development around across total Asia, not just Indonesia. Yeah, well, I, obviously there's a big gap in 15 years between when I trained with the Geckos in '99 to when I resumed in 2013 or whatever. Um, from what I've heard, it's it's probably less less of a Oh, let's just go and drink and, and travel culture to actually 
um, being a bit more professional about the way they approach their footy, but also want to teach and, and bring in more participants into Australian football. I think that's been the biggest change I've seen. It's more about how can we bring more people into our game? How can we teach people our game? How do we get more local participants and not rely on our expats who move to Bali? Yeah. They might be here for a short time and then leave mm-hmm. again. We're try- really trying to um, expose our game to particularly our local, um, our local Indonesians who have got talent. That's the thing. There's plenty of talent out there. Um, we just yeah. need to get them exposed to our game and, and give them a pathway. But that, that requires money and time and resources. And, and I'm hoping the AFL identify that, that that's what we need. You can't just keep relying on volunteers who are happy to put up their time and their effort and, um, and not much reward. Um, I'm hoping the AFL identify Asia as a really big Australian rules hotspot. Yeah, that was going to be my next question leading into, you know, what more could the AFL or AFL Asia do to assist in terms of growing the game? Because, as I said, my time in Vietnam was participation and local participation as much as you could, you know, because that was where the sustainability of the game was going to come from rather than sort of people sort of floating, as you say, floating in and floating out. Um, As as I said, you know, as I say, you've just sort of touched on, you know, what, what more I think the AFL, is recognising it more, um, as I say, this year being a step forward with the grants program that AFL Asia uh, was has been afforded as part of the budgeting. So, um, so yeah, so I think it is starting to get a bit more noise. And obviously, you know, AFL Asia, and again, more so from a, a board level, we've got to sort of start to become, of course, a bit more professional as well, you know, and, and as you say, move away from that old thinking to the new innovative thinking as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think we just got to change that perception. I think the AFL might have had that perception too. It was just a group of expats getting together and getting on the piss. But I think AFL Asia, what I've seen, is has really changed. And uh, I think they're starting to see. Simon Highfield's been brilliant since he's been at the AFL. Um, so yeah, I can see. I can see Australian rules really booming in our market, particularly with our women. I think. I think women, in particular, yeah. Asian women, love our game once they're exposed to it. And and we find it hard to find. Yeah. Grounds as well. Indonesia just doesn't have football, you know, sized grounds. Um, we're always playing on soccer fields. Um, so we're going to have to modify the way we do play AFL here. Okay. So tell us about winning the champs. Uh, how was the build up? What went on behind the scenes getting the, what I call, and I hope still you'll refer to as warring parties from Jakarta and Bali together um, into one squad? And then obviously getting it done on the day. Yeah, I think it stemmed back to the they were arch enemies. Jakarta and Bali Good. were always arch enemies. Bali started on the back of daring Jakarta to play a game of footy back in '97, so there was always a bit of rivalry and, and probably a bit of hatred there for a little while. But I guess when I came along and a lot of new faces came in, um, we didn't think it made that much sense to be to be working against each other. We thought it made more sense to work together. And MJ, who's the coach, Matt Jolly, who's the coach of Jakarta and, and their president at the time, Paul Halliday, um, they agreed that we should be working together to not only to be better on the field, but to help build participation numbers in Indonesia. So it was a gradual process. It didn't happen overnight, but over time we, we started playing more together, doing more things together. So it made sense to also take two teams to the Asian champs. Mm. So rather than Jakarta going A grade and get smashed and Bali going to B grade and win, 
Uh, we thought we'd better off having an A and a B team. So the A, the A team's full of guys who really want to take their footy seriously. And, and the B grades for a lot of the guys who are a bit older or maybe still learning the game, whether Indonesian or, or from some other part of the world. So it made sense to have two teams, A and B. Um, and, and that year we had a really strong A team. We've got guys from Jakarta and, and Bali. And, um, you know, we, we had a really good win. Uh, we really prepared well going into that tournament as well. We really wanted to win. We really prepared well. And then the following year, I think we had to defend our title in, in Thailand, um, at, in Pattaya. And our boys got totally sidetracked by what, by what Thailand can offer. Um, so I think their sleeping patterns and all that were a little bit, um, <laughs> a little bit derailed. And I didn't even, I didn't even have a full, I didn't even have a full list on the Saturday either. I, I think a few of the boys missed the bus. So we're up against it, you know, early in that following year. But yeah, it was a great, it was a great um, day to win the Asian champs as in Indonesian volcanoes. I had my brother coaching the B grade as well. And we had Dean Laley, who Danny Laley now, but Dean Laley at the time was our assistant yes. coach. And he, he was great to have um, as, I guess, a mentor for me as the coach. Uh, I remember we had, we had Troy Luff playing for us. Because Luffy's played for the Bali Geckos for years and years. He's probably played almost the most number of games behind Hinchy. And he, Rod, you know Luffy. And he wants the game plan all to revolve around him. So, <laughs> yes. Yes. So when we play Bali Masters, it's always Rick, clear out the clear out the forward arc, just kick it to me, I'll do the rest. And I never miss. I never miss a set shot. So we get to the Asian champs, and again, he's he's come up to Dean Laley and I go, mate, you've got to kick it to me, clear out the path. You've got two bloody blokes in the 450. Aaron Edwards is no good. Just use him as a dummy lead. Um, so after the first game, we actually lost the Philippines. And I said, Luffy, mate, you go to centre-half back. And I don't want to hear from you again today. Just go to centre-half back and just play like you did when you played the Sydney Swans. And I want to hear from you again. And he was brilliant. He had a, he had a great day. Um, yeah. And that's that's Luffy for you. But we get, we've had some really great names come through the Geckos. We, you know, we, we brought Paul Williams over to Vietnam. We took Dane Swan to Batam when we launched the Batam Bats. Um, so we've had some really great names come through the geckos and play for the geckos, which has been it's been a, it's been a great experience for a lot of the guys who play for the geckos to play alongside or train alongside. Um, you know, a lot of these we've had. You know, look at this week's grand final. We've had Max Gorn come down, mm. Christian Petrarca, Aaron Norton did a preseason with us, Cody Waitman trained with us before he got drafted. Um, so we've had, you know, a lot wow. of these boys, um, you know, obviously Jones is not going to be there, Nathan Jones, but he even played a match. We had actually had a um, Victoria versus rest of the world game um, at Finns one night. And Nathan Jones actually played for Victoria on his wow. holiday. We had, and we had, yes, yeah, so he was captain of Melbourne at the time playing for Victoria. Um, and uh, I think Brian Lake played as well. Um, oh, yeah. after, after crashing, yeah. he, he came all bandies up because he crashed his motorbike on the way to the game. <laughs> so it's, it's that, that's one great thing. We've had, we've had Dusty Martin come down and do some preseason mm. sessions with us, so we've had some great names come through the place. Yeah, and that does that does as I said that that's great for as I say profile right of the profile for AFL Asia as well. And I think that's one of the that's one of the things that you know maybe follow up from this from this pod. I'll probably take up with you the something that how can we leverage that a little bit more in terms of AFL Asia and what we can do around that space 
in, in the social space as well, the digital space. How have you found it, mate, moving from the playing to the coaching side? So, you know, you enjoy other can besides the fact, and you know, I wrote down here in my notes, you probably don't need to bring Luffy back either, but yeah, you know, how have you found the you know, the say the coaching part of it now? Do you enjoy that? I go on, I guess you do. Oh, yeah, it's like Rogers. Some parts of it you really enjoy, but oh, I yeah. pull my hair at times. I, it does send you center, oh, that's for sure. Yeah, um, coaching. I'd much rather be playing than, than coaching. It's and at the moment I'm still playing, so I'm sort of a playing coach, and I do love giving a spray though. I'm pretty, I'm, I am known to to give the odd spray or two. I threw the whiteboard at the players once when we lost to Jakarta. Um, actually, Chad Fletcher played that game. I haven't seen him come back since. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a really t- tough caper, uh, coach, especially in, in Asian footy. It's not like grassroots footy back in Australia where you train Tuesday, Thursday, you play Saturday. You know, we, we've got a tour, we've got to travel, we've got, you know, guys from all around the world. We've got, it, it's a really tough job, but no one else wants to put their hand up for it. So I'm stuck with the job at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's some, it's some really great, great moments with the geckos for sure. It's funny when you, and I guess maybe when you talk to people back in Australia, and again, you know, like like you and I we sort of play local footy back home in Oz, but you sort of try to explain to people about footy in Asia. And you go, yeah, you know, we get 25 blokes on a plane and we fly to a different country and we play another country. What? Like they just can't get their head around that? Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, you get on a plane, another plane, you get four-hour stopover in KL. And then like when we come to Vietnam, for example, and then we have to travel three hours in a bus and, um, you go. What are we? What are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we going to this effort just to play a game of football? But we just love it. It's when I think if you have to work so hard to get a game, you appreciate the game even more. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just it's just part of our it's just part of the experience, I guess, playing Asian footy. It's, it's the it's those moments on traveling together and those nights out together, and that's one of the reasons I still play. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. No, totally, totally agree. Same here. Same to be involved. Now, look, we're getting to the end of the podcast, but before we do, can't can't go past as you've already mentioned it. You're a massive Bulldogs fan. They're into the granny. What should we expect from your mob? Uh, Bulldogs by how far? And maybe uh, a Norm Smith Norm, Norm Smith medal tip. Yeah, oh, we're pretty excited. House at the moment, we've got the red, white, blue balloons up from the preliminary final. They're still hanging up. Um, so I'm confident that dogs can do the job on Melbourne. Um, I actually I found a, a photo of my mum and her twin sister at the 1954 grand final during the week. So that was a nice moment. Okay. Um, and she unfortunately passed uh, during 2016. So she didn't get to see the, the second premiership. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be lucky to see the Bulldogs hopefully win another one. Norm Smith. Yeah. Um, I guess it's hard to go past someone like Bont or Bailey Smith. They're probably the obvious choices, but if you want someone who uh, might pay a little bit more money, um, who can we go with? Uh, Hunter. Let's go with Lockie Hunter. He's a bit of a smoky. Right, We'll come back. We'll revisit that post-grand final, mate. Okay. Now, the way we normally uh, close out this podcast is what, what we call the Super Six. And... Uh, what it does is it gives um, it gives our subject a chance to throw a few people under the bus on the way out. Normally they would be uh, 
Swans people that that subject has played with during their time at the Swans. But given your um, your career across continents, feel free to um, feel free to pick players from any of your AFL teams or or the Geckos or any other Asian team that you've come across. So basically, how it works, we give you six um, words, and you just let us know the the teammate that comes to mind when we, when we say that word. Okay. Okay. All right. Put me on the spot. I'll see how I go. Yeah. So, so the first one, first one, nice and easy. Funny. Funniest player. I, from my AFL days, Tim Watson. He, he was, he, his one lines were hilarious. Um, and from the get go, Tim Tracy, uh, he's the one who makes me laugh the most. Yeah, very good. Ballarat boy. Good country, Vic Lad. Yeah. Uh, okay, angry. Angriest. Oh. It, the craziest eyes, the angriest bloke I've ever played with was definitely Mark Harvey. Um, <laughs> the scariest eyes I've ever seen. But you know who's not far behind it is Hinchy. Hinchy's now 56 this month, I think he is. And he's still the most competitive, angriest bloke on the footy field, just behind Mark Harvey. Okay. Some commonality there, Billy, with uh, with Kero, our president. Him and Hinchy probably mould yeah. the same. Yeah, there's something yeah. in that. Something in that. Uh, best dressed. Well, you can rule out any gecko. There's no <laughs> Bali gecko who dressed as well. So we can rule out any players there. Um, thinking back to my footy days, I remember Shay Cockatoo Collins. He mm. he was the first one I remember wearing leather pants and he got away with it. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, lazy. <laughs> Lazy. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's lazy, but Dustin Fletcher was one bloke who just kept producing amazing performances on, on game day, but never, I never saw him in the gym. I never saw him in any extra sessions. He always came last in the runs. Um, he always had high body fat. Um, but on game day, he just slaughtered him. So I don't know if it's lazy or just he was just smart. Maybe he's just one of those smart footballers who just got around doing the bullshit stuff. And you know who yeah. wasn't far behind him? Damien Hardwick. He was very wow. much the same. Never, never saw him do any extra. First, first leave training, last to arrive. Um, not far behind that. In terms of lazy, we've got a bloke here at Gecko's called Pothole. Um, yep. I've never – he's got the biggest bag of excuses a bloke has ever seen. He just – every week he pulls out a new excuse. <laughs> and just when I thought he can't come up with any more, he always finds a new one. Perfect. So he's he's definitely in a lazy basket. Yeah. Uh, the coach's pet. Well, uh, well, if you ask any of my gecko players, they wouldn't they wouldn't be a coach's pet. They give them all a spray. <laughs> um, thinking back to my playing days, Dean Wallace got pretty lucky on occasions. Mm. You know, I, I, I like Wally's a boy, but geez, he got picked to play some games, and particularly ninety three grand final, where he was bloody lucky to get to get picked from where wow. he come from. So yeah, he's, yeah, you'd have to say. He was coach's pet that year. Uh, and annoying, last but not least. Oh, well, I've already covered this, Blake. Luffy, definitely most annoying teammate. <laughs> goes. Uh, most annoying bloke to coach. Um, definitely up there for sure. Uh, both Geckos and AFL. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Beautiful. Very true. On, on that note, we'll, um, we'll leave it there. But thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, Ricky. It's been an incredible insight into both your 
AFL and Balinese football days. No worries, mate. Thanks for uh, thinking of me. Thanks for the introduction too. Massive. I might <laughs> play that one. <laughs> and uh, Rocket, Rocket, you've been incredible as always. Well done, mate. Thank you. No, my pleasure, Billy. Always thanks, Rick, mate, for jumping on. It's been great, mate. All right. Hopefully I'll be playing on you or against you some point next year, yeah? That's right. As soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Val. I've got, to get, I've got to get the footy training myself. Rick and the Bali Geckos are back training and playing intra-club games. Hopefully we're not far from doing the same. So make sure you keep an eye on our Facebook and our website for all the latest news. And, of course, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Most importantly, please support our 2021 sponsors. They've been so generous in their support and they're depending on our support as things open up. Our 2021 sponsors are Halida Beer, The Republic up in Hanoi, The Alfrescos Group throughout the country, HMS Host International, Wildside Custom, TAL Apparel, Crown Relocations, QBE, the Australian International School in Saigon, X Digital and Ninja Inc. Like I said, please do whatever you can to support them and make sure you keep honking. Yeah,